Welcome to In His Grip with Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. In His Grip is a daily broadcast presented by Mark Inc. Ministries. Today we continue our first sermon from the mini-series, God Will Make a Way. In the aftermath of the death of his 16-year-old son, Mark, Chuck Betters' faith was on the line. For over 25 years, he preached and taught that God is the builder of broken bridges and brings beauty from ashes. But now, in this horrific grief, he questioned if God could do that for him and his family. Dr. Betters does not shy away from asking the hard questions and transparently shares his own faith struggle in this three-part series, God Will Make a Way. Let's join Dr. Betters for the continuation of our first message in this series. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years. And Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? What a question. What a question. I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. God turns to Abraham. He now has one son and one son only. Sometime later, verse 1, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here am I, he replied, and God said, take your son. Hebrew word, by the way, is not the word for infant or child. It's a, it's a word that talks about an older, older son. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. You know what is so interesting to me as I read this story? What a, what a, what a holy chapter, by the way, Genesis 22 is. It is a glorious, glorious foretaste of the coming of Jesus Christ. You can't miss it in Genesis 22. Even the mountain where he sought to sacrifice Isaac is the same mountain complex where Golgotha is today. In fact, Abraham renamed the mountain Jehovah Jireh, which means in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And there on the spot, he fully intended, read it closely, Abraham did not for one minute object. Now why would he? He already knows that this child is a miraculous child, that he, there's no conceivable way, there's no possible way Isaac could have been born short of a miracle. He's looking at this boy every day of his life and realizing that God has worked a mighty miracle. There's not one single word of objection when God says to Abraham, take Isaac up to the mountain and kill him there. He turns to the boy, says, pack your bags, gets a group of servants together, and they march up to the mountain. When they come to the foot of the mountain, there they are at the foot of the mountain. He turns to the servants and all the donkey attenders and all the camel drivers, he turns to them and says, you guys wait here. I and the lad are going up to the mountain. Now get this. And we will return to you. What's he saying? 
What do you believe Abraham is saying? He has now graduated theologically to a much higher plane than he was when first God called him. He now looks at this son fully intending in his mind to kill him and to have God on that mountain raise that boy from the dead right on the spot. A glorious picture of the coming of Jesus Christ. A wonderful example. I mean, God has this story in Genesis 22 for one reason and one reason only, to identify for us what he would experience when he would send his son to die on the cross for us. Even in the same mountain complex. I mean, there's some glorious illustrations. Isaac carries the wood up to the mountain. Christ carried the wood up to his mountain. A ram was caught in the thicket. Jesus is called, of course, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The name of the mountain itself. The, the implication of resurrection. All of these things. All of these point us gloriously to the fact that Abraham was trusting in what God said in the past that I am going to make of you a great nation, but it was also a touchstone that was in conjunction with the future. You see, what he's doing is he's looking back to the Word of God and the faithfulness of God's promise, and he's looking ahead to the Word of God and the provision of Messiah. A major touchstone in the history of God's redemption program is the birth of Isaac. Well, let's move ahead. Turn to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. Touchstone number two. God will make a way. Touchstone number two. Exodus chapter 13. Verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, you know the story of the people of Israel in bondage to Pharaoh. You all saw the Ten Commandments, right? When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country. Though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road through the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt armed for battle. Now, I want you to be a Jew coming out of Egypt that day. Now, you know a little bit about the terrain. You know where you're supposed to go. You're supposed to end up at Mount Sinai. And you know how to get there. The shortest point or the shortest distance between two points is what? A straight line. So they start marching on out, ram's horns blowing, tribes all lined up. God stops them dead in their tracks and he says, going the wrong way change in traffic patterns. I want you to go this way. I want you to make a big circle. Now, the interesting thing here is that God doesn't explain this to them. Notice it says, so God led the people. God said, God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. No explanation given. He knew that if they went through from one point A to one point B, and if they passed into that straight line, they were going to have to face some pretty tough, ornery critters. And they were not ready for war because for 430 years, they did nothing but receive lashes. They didn't know how to fight. They were not armed warriors. 
They were not trained soldiers. They were a bunch of slaves who had just gotten their freedom. And so they're marching around, listening to the voice of God, and then they come to the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14, verse 1. Look what happens. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Piharoth, between Migdal and the sea. Isn't it interesting the specific directions that God gives? He wanted them in a specific geographical place. So he leads them around, all the way around the barn, all the way around, out of their way, seemingly out of their way. They didn't understand. They couldn't comprehend. He was avoiding conflict and war for them, brings them all the way around, says to the people, take a few steps back now. I want you to go over and encamp right here at point X. Not point Y, point X. They are to encamp by the sea directly opposite Baal Zephon. Now God said, Pharaoh's going to think, these people don't know where they're going. They're just following their God like a bunch of Looney Tunes around in the desert. Certainly there aren't any soldiers out there. Pharaoh's going to reason, these people are sheep without a shepherd. These people are soldiers without a commander. This is the most stupid military thing they could do because literally, when they stationed themselves at point X, they had absolutely no way of escape. Look it up on the map. You know what you're going to see? Mountains on the right, mountains on the left, the Red Sea straight ahead, and Pharaoh pursuing them from the, from the, from the rear. There's nowhere to go. There's absolutely nowhere to go. So what does God say? Pharaoh's going to say the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. That's a good way to express it. Hemmed in. You ever feel hemmed in? Well, he led them there. And then he says this, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and he's going to pursue you. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his armies and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. I am not going to bring you into this point X, hem you in, constrict you, box you in, so that you can receive glory for yourself. In fact, I'm bringing you into a situation where if you escape it, there's no conceivable way you could take any credit. I am showing you this constricted lifestyle. I am boxing you into that corner so that as you look to the right and look to the left and look straight ahead and look to the rear, you know there's only one other direction to look, and that's what? Up! I'm bringing you to the point where, brother, sister, you have no choice but to look up. That's where he's brought my family. That's where he's bringing our family. How do you answer these questions? You're listening to In His Grip with Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church. We will return to our message in just a few moments. But first, 
Here is a special offer from Mark Inc. Ministries. Are you wrestling with God? Does your pathway seem impossible? Sharon Betters shares her own story of wrestling with God in order to reconcile His love and His sovereignty. Learn more about Treasures in Darkness, A Grieving Mother Shares Her Heart by visiting markinc.org. Order now and we will include Loss of a Loved One, a transparent interview with Chuck and Sharon Betters in which they share their own grief journey. Order Treasures in Darkness, the book by Sharon Betters today at markinc.org. And now, let's rejoin Dr. Betters as he continues our message today. How do you answer these questions? You look to the right, you see a mountain of explanations. They don't work. You look to the left, you see another mountain of explanations. They don't work. You look ahead, you're going to drown. You look behind you, there's the devil pursuing. There's no other place to look but up. And what does God say? I'm so glad you looked up. Because now I can bring you a way of escape so that as the miracle in your life has worked, you don't receive any credit for it, but you can bow down on your knees before God as you're looking up and say, God has delivered me from this constrictive circumstance. I will gain glory. So the Israelites did this when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled. Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done? All that tax money. So he had his chariots, must have been Democrats. So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all other chariots of Egypt. All the tanks with officers on them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. Boldly. In this great, we're free, 430 years. In your face, Pharaoh, 430 years, we're free. Horns blowing, trumpets sounding. Turn left, children. All right, Lord, we'll turn left. They turn left. Park the camp over here, children. Fine, Lord, whatever you say. Then word comes out. Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them. Guess where they overtook them? At point X, where God led them. Opposite Baal Zephon, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. Egyptians, they were terrified, cried out to the Lord, said to Moses, you brought us here. You brought us. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt? You brought us down to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us up out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been much better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this desert. Now, let's not get too hasty in our criticism of these guys. Wouldn't you have said the same thing? I mean, at least you would have been alive back in Egypt. At least you would have had some semblance of honor left to bring us out here into the desert, to cut off, cut, to, to slit our throats and to allow the vultures to chew us to shreds. Wouldn't you have said the same thing? Moses answered the people, 
do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And then you know the rest of the story. Read the song of deliverance that they sing on the other side. The great song of deliverance that Orthodox Jews even to this day still quote as they remember this touchstone in history. But you see, in order to understand this touchstone, you have to look back. You can't just isolate the Exodus out of the Bible. The Exodus is connected to something. Do you know what it's connected to? The first touchstone, when God called Abram and said, I am going to make of you a great nation. When they came to that point X, when they were camped at the Migdal and facing the, the, pros, the prospect of destruction by the Egyptians, there was only one thing and one thing only they could trust in, and that is that God had made a promise to Abraham that he was going to make of Abraham a great nation. Now the whole nation is sitting out there in the middle of the desert ready to be destroyed and the only conceivable way that God could be faithful to the promise of the past was to deliver them from the situation of the present. Another puzzle part. And he fits it in and delivers Israel out of their bondage. Well, let me give you touchstone number three. Turn to Ruth chapter four. Not a book you read in your devotions, is it? Ruth, chapter 4. Here is the story of a woman who was a Moabite. What's a Moabite? A Gentile, not a Jew. Ruth, and the story of Ruth and her relationship to her mother-in-law, is just a beautiful story of family relationships. But I got to tell you, if that's all you get out of the book of Ruth, you miss the significance of Ruth. There is only one major point, in my opinion, in the book of Ruth. There is one piece of the puzzle that God is putting together, and without the book of Ruth, you don't have it. Here it is, Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz, he's the one who eventually marries Ruth, went up to the town gate and sat there. Now here's the situation. Ruth is supposed to be married, but there were legal requirements as to who could marry her. Inheritance laws, uh, kinsman redeemer laws, etc. We don't have the time to develop that, except to say that Boaz, when he realized that he desired to marry Ruth, was wanting to make sure that the relationship he would have with her was perfectly legal. So he goes up and he gets counsel as to whether or not it was proper and legal for him to marry Ruth. Now you can take the time and read those 17 verses, but the key verse I want you to come to is the last verse, verse 17. Then Naomi took the child. What child? the child that was born of the relationship between Ruth and Boaz. The marriage between Ruth and Boaz, a child is born. 
Now here's the purpose of the book of Ruth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi had a son. Really, it's a grandson. And they named him Obed. Who in the world is Obed? The father of Jesse, who is the father of David. Now you have the purpose of the book of Ruth. The child that would be born would establish the Davidic dynasty. And what is the Davidic dynasty? The next piece in the mural. God was going to establish a covenant with Abraham, the law with Moses, and the Davidic dynasty that would lead ultimately to the birth of Jesus Christ, who would become the king of his people. But Ruth and Boaz were faced with an impossible situation. Did they know all these puzzle parts? Of course they didn't. Of course they had no idea. They had no clue that they were giving birth to the grandfather of David, who would become the king of Israel, who would become the father in his kingship to the line of Jesse, the line of David that would give birth to Messiah. They didn't have a clue. You see what God's doing here? Puzzle parts. Puzzle parts. God will make a way when there seems to be no way. How was he going to do this? How was he going to do this? How in the world is he going to fulfill his covenant? By giving birth himself to Messiah. By God becoming a man. That's what he's reaching toward. And all of these touchstones in the Old Testament are pointing to that. They're reaching for that. Now let me ask you a question as we close this part. Let me ask you a question. In how many situations have you found yourself painted into a corner? Boxed in. You say to yourself, Lord, I am trying to live the Christian life. I've trusted in Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I've believed the gospel. How come I look around and see all the wicked people prospering? Every move I make seems to be counterattacked by Satan. Every time I think I'm taking three, four steps ahead, something happens and I take three, four steps back. Why isn't this easy? Why do we have to suffer so much? Why? 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 Now let me ask you in response this question. As you get this panoramic view that goes back thousands of years where God is orchestrating specific details of this wonderful mural called salvation. If he is in absolute control of all of those fine details of even the marriage of Ruth to Boaz, even the kinsman redeemer laws, if he is in control of all of that and gives birth to this baby who would become the grandfather of David, if God is in that much control over the progress of redemptive history, how is it that we could have any problems believing that he could work out our puny little lives? 
that he could fit together the puzzle parts in my puny little life. I don't know why our son died. I don't know why your son died, why your husband died. I don't know why your brother died. I can tell you this though, it's only one little puzzle piece and as life goes on, he's going to continue to handle, hand you those puzzle pieces, piece by piece. And he's going to show you how the mural is fitting together. And when you die and you get to heaven and you look at what God majestically has woven in your life, then it's going to make sense. Then you're going to be able to say, Lord, I had no direction to look but up. And what did I see when I looked up? I saw the glory of God, not my glory, the glory of God weaving a wonderful program, a wonderful picture, a wonderful painting, inexplicable, inexplicable. Is that blind faith? Is that blind faith? Or is that faith in the promises of Scripture? I believe it's faith in the promises of Scripture. We'll continue looking at these touchstones next time we're together. That's all the time we have for today. Be sure to join us next time for the continuation of this series, God Will Make a Way. If you would like to order this sermon in its entirety, call us toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877-627-5462. When calling, ask for reference code 93-77. You can also find this broadcast and the series on our website at markinc.org. Click on the sermon link and look for the series, God Will Make a Way. Thank you for joining us today. If you would like to support Mark Inc. Ministries, visit us online at markinc.org and click on the support link. There are many ways you can help our ministry. You can make a one-time contribution, a reoccurring monthly contribution, or you can support the production of specific Mark Inc. Ministries resources. That website again is markinc.org. Until next time, have a blessed day and remember that God is sovereign and you can trust Him as long as you are in His grip.